John chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 20. Remember, Jesus is having his encounter with the woman at the well. Which by societal and cultural and religious norms was totally inappropriate. I don't know if I'd mentioned this previously, but Jesus, of course, was recognized by his disciples and many others as a rabbi, a teacher. A rabbi was not allowed to speak to a woman in public, not even his wife, let alone a Samaritan woman. The encouraging part, the good news is, Jesus said, all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. So other people might reject you. They might not like you. They might have a problem with you, right? We talked about this last week, I believe, where this has happened in the church, unfortunately, where people are, they've had some past issue in their life, a divorce or whatever. Certain churches will reject them, turn them away, disfellowship them. At the very least, kind of just ignore them. Not Jesus. He doesn't care who you are or what you've done. He loves you. He died on the cross for you. And this is displayed dynamically and powerfully by his interaction with the Samaritan woman. So let's read verses 20 through 26. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews... So this is the woman talking to Jesus right now. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word today. We pray that you continue to give us insight and understanding into the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as presented to us very well by the Apostle John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Lord, Speak to our hearts today, we pray. Feed our spirits. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember from last week, as they're having this conversation, Jesus had told her, You've had five husbands, and the man that you're married, or that you're with now, is not your husband. And she said, uh, "I perceive that you are a prophet." <laughs> you think? <laughs> and yet, you notice at the end of this passage we just read, she's talking about the Messiah as someone who has not yet come. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Well, that's exactly what Jesus just did. But let's get into this. So she says to him, "She's changing the subject." You see that? We don't ever do that, do we? Somebody says something to you, asks you a question, and you don't really want to answer, so you just change the subject. So she jumps right over to, well, you know, we have different ideas on worship. We Samaritans, you know, we have one mountain we worship on, and you have another. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Yep, she's changed the subject from her personal life 
and her spiritual condition, caught in her own sin, she's now deflecting. Uh, Albert Barnes, Bible commentator, says, Mount Gerizim, only a little way from Sakar, where they are right now, also known as Shechem, the place where Jacob's well was. Remember, we talked about that last week. Mount Gerizim, only a little way from Sakar. On this mountain, they had built a temple somewhat similar to the one in Jerusalem. This was one of the main subjects of controversy between them, the Samaritans, and the Jews. And then she goes on, she says, You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So the Samaritans, we've already talked about this, they were considered half-breeds. They had intermarried with the Assyrians. They were shunned by the Jews. But they still worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But having been rejected in the rebuilding of the temple under Nehemiah, the Samaritans had wanted to help in that project. They were turned away. They built their own temple and established their own unauthorized and unsanctioned form of worship. And in many ways, that's how a number of the cults that are around today got started as well. Well, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. This phrase Jesus uses here, believe me. It's the only time Jesus uses this expression. And it's to a Samaritan woman, to his own people, the Jews. His usual language is, I say unto you. But here he says, believe me. Take me seriously. Take this to heart. The hour is coming. The time is at hand when there will be a monumental shift in how one worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. So Jesus is telling her that this whole issue about where one worships, Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem, the church building, the steeple, the, you know, the cathedral. Even though many of those things were built after this, Jesus is saying worship is not about the place. It's about the person and their relationship with God. With his impending death and resurrection, as he's speaking to this woman, Jesus is poised to move all those who will come out of religion Yes, the Samaritans had their whole religious protocol just as the Jews did. But Jesus is poised to move all those who will come out of religion, this mountain, that mountain, and into a personal relationship with God the Father. We have defined the difference many times. Religion is man's efforts to reach God. There are many religions on this planet, right? And every one of them has their own ideas and their own ways and their own scriptures, if you will, or writings about how to reach God. That's religion. Relationship is what God did when he sent his son Jesus Christ down to this planet to reach out to us, die on the cross for us, and give us the opportunity to have fellowship with God once again. <clears throat> Jesus says to her, Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. 
And folks, that's like many people today. The Samaritans believed in God. But in fact, if you take a survey, I, it's still pretty high. It's between 75-80% or more of Americans claim to believe in God. But what does that really mean? The Samaritans believed in God, but their understanding of who he truly was and is was incomplete. They worshipped in ignorance and therefore had no actual relationship with him. You worship what you do not know. And that would stand for all those who worship false gods as well. Jesus says, we know what we worship. And there, when he says we, he's speaking of his people, the Jews. As God's chosen people, God had entrusted to them his holy scriptures, as we know at that point, the Old Testament. Now we have both the Old and the New. He had entrusted to them his holy scriptures, his immutable, undeniable spiritual truths. Romans 3.1, this is from the NIV. 3.1 and 2. Paul writes, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Because he's talking about the fact that circumcision, basically in a nutshell, doesn't save you. Just like communion doesn't save you. Just like baptism doesn't save you. They are merely outward expressions of what God has done in your heart. So he says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So that's why Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. How do we know? Because God's word tells us. It's not a matter of your own interpretation, your own feelings, your own gut level reaction and so forth that people go by. We know what we worship for salvation, Jesus says, is of the Jews. That might sound a little shocking to a Gentile reading this passage. Salvation is the Jews. They rejected Christ. Not all. All the first followers of Christ were what? Jewish. Right. All the apostles were what? Jewish. And that was a big problem in the early Protestant church and the tremendous persecution of the Jews because they blamed the Jews en masse for the killing of Jesus. We actually know it was a few people, right? The leaders, the elders, the, Sa the, the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees that were responsible for Christ's crucifixion. Salvation is of the Jews. God has revealed his plan of salvation through his people, the Jews. By the way, Jesus is a... Right. First through Father Abraham... And then finally through his son, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. James 2.23, the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, salvation by grace through faith. And it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, Judaism. Israel, the Hebrew nation. Acts 4.12 Now is there salvation in any other, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name, Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation 
is of the Jews. Going all the way back to Father Abraham, culminating with the coming of Christ. And Jesus goes on to tell her, but the hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not on any particular mountain. In spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. And he was seeking that Samaritan woman that day. The hour is coming and now is. Jesus is pronouncing a monumental flashpoint. An imminent, impending, and in a way you could say cataclysmic transformation in the way Jew and Gentile would relate to and interact with God. Matthew 4.17, from that time, and this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not at the end, the beginning. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, we've talked about it many times, to have a change of heart, a change of mind, to turn and go the other way, to turn from a life of sin and to follow Christ. Repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. That's what Jesus was saying. I'm here. I am the king of the kingdom of heaven. And I'm here among you. You know, although God's kingdom is mentioned in the Old Testament, this exact phrase, kingdom of heaven, only appears in the New Testament as introduced by Jesus, this concept, this idea, the kingdom of heaven. I already said this, but religion is man's efforts to reach God. Neither Jew nor Gentile ever imagined that God would actually reach down to them through his Son. Even those who anticipated the coming of a Messiah of sorts never knew or understood or envisioned the idea that he would be God incarnate, God in the flesh, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father out of two systems of worship, Judaism and the uninformed worship of the Samaritans who were looked upon as Gentiles, a true form of worship would emerge drawing and gathering truth seekers of every persuasion, not bound by superstition, tradition, or man-made regulations. Jesus started with the 12, right? 12 disciples. Then what? What came next? The 70. And it goes on from there. And Jesus said the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which was the smallest of all seeds, barely viewable with the human eye. And yet Jesus said when you plant that seed and it begins to grow, it turns into this massive bush. And he was talking about the growth of God's kingdom that it would expand, it would multiply from 12 to 70 to 120 in the upper room and on and on and on to where today we have millions upon millions of people worldwide who worship God and His Son Jesus Christ. The time is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father. And by the way, folks, this all ties in with what we've been learning so far in the first four chapters of John, it ties in with the new wine. Remember Jesus said you can't put new wine in old wineskins. They will burst. 
the old system cannot stand the new covenant and the blood of Christ. You've got to have a change of heart, a change of mind. You can't stay stuck in those old religious traditions. You will not be able to receive the new wine, the new birth, what Jesus talked about with Nicodemus. You must be born again. All of this ties together. This idea that the time is coming is now here when those who worship the Father will worship Him in spirit and in truth. New wine, second birth, the living water that He's talking to this woman about. Mark 2.22 No one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. The Holy Spirit. Never before in human history had the Holy Spirit indwelt the individual believer. Under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, he would come upon a Samson. He would come upon a Saul. He would come upon a Samuel. But never in the history of mankind did humans have the opportunity to be personally indwelt by the Spirit of God until Jesus came. And that's how we're able to worship Him in spirit and in truth. John 3.3 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There are some who would argue and dispute the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two different things. I disagree. It's just two different ways of saying the same thing. God's kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. To worship in spirit, he says, and I said this years ago, I think it's, I, I feel good about it, I believe it's true. The true worship takes place when the spirit of man, how many of you know that you have a spirit? In fact, that's the very core and the very essence of who you are. We're created in God's image. God is the spirit. True worship takes place when the spirit of man makes contact with the Spirit of God. Okay? We could be singing, clapping, dancing, doing all kinds of stuff, but if our spirits aren't connecting with God, we're not really worshiping. You might, we're having a good time. You could say we're celebrating, but we have to focus on getting our spirits connected to God's Spirit. Whether it's prayer, worship, there are many different ways, uh, prayer, singing, so forth. True worship takes place when the spirit of man makes contact with the spirit of God. Just as baptism is an outward expression of what God has done inside of us, but does not save us in and of itself, worship in all of its forms, folks, listen to me, it's empty and void without inner transformation and connection with God. First Corinthians 13 one through three. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, agape, agape, God's unconditional love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul is speaking here of agape or agape love, which is imparted to us 
by God. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say that the ultimate evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, there are some groups that teach, if you do not speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. The only problem is the Bible doesn't say that. It is an evidence which is very common in the New Testament. Let me say that. And Paul said, I wish you all spoke in tongues more than I do. Why would he say that if some of you can't do it? Some people say, well, that's just not my gift. Well, it could be. God says he loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So when it talks about tongues of angels, it's talking about a heavenly language that bypasses the human intellect and allows us to have perfect communication with God. So I would encourage you, if that's something that's in your heart that you desire, don't be afraid of it, don't be scared of it. Ask God for it. But the point is that the primary evidence, I agree with Pastor Chuck, because it, Paul just said it here in 1 Corinthians 13, you can do all these things. Speak with the tongues of men and of angels. And if you don't have love, agape, which only comes from God living inside of you, then it's just a bunch of noise. And that's the point I'm trying to make as it relates to what Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman here. The time is coming and is now here when God's true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. The ultimate evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that we are filled with God's love. And I don't know about you guys, but I fall miserably short. I'm still working on it. it, it, it and I don't always succeed, let me tell you. you. mean, pastor, you're not perfect? Absolutely not. It requires a daily yielding of ourselves over to God. Paul says, I beat my body into submission. The Apostle Paul. I mean, to me, he's like the ultimate. Other than Jesus, is there anybody greater than the Apostle Paul? You know, Peter and John are right up there, but Paul wrote a vast part of the New Testament. And he says, I no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. I am crucified in Christ. Paul realized that to, to be a true follower of Christ and to walk in the light and the love of God, it requires a daily dying to self. And if we want to be true worshipers of God, we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to work on that. We're going to have to daily take up our cross and follow Christ. And that cross, folks, many people think it's the cross of suffering, as in Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. He had to carry his own cross. He was in a weakened state. Finally, Simon of Cyrene had to carry it for him. You remember that? That's how weak Jesus was. Jesus was, I think he was a pretty buff dude, if you want to know the truth. He was a carpenter up until the age of 30. He walked hundreds of miles in his life. The guy was strong, but he was so beaten down by the Roman soldiers that he was, and already lost a lot of blood before he ever got to the cross that ultimately Simon the Cyrene had to carry his cross for him. So when he says... If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus' cross is the cross of self-denial. That's what it is. That's what it takes to be a follower of Christ, self-denial. Paul said, all things are lawful or all things are beneficial, but not all things, uh, are, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. In other words, even if it's something that as a believer you're allowed to do or you feel 
you don't feel convicted by the Holy Spirit about, it may not be beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And many of the things that we would desire and want, we might be able to kind of skirt the technicalities and say, I think it's okay if I do this. God won't mind. I'm not convicted by the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, yeah, but is it beneficial? Is it profitable to your walk with God? Self-denial. Being willing to deny things in this life that other people don't deny, that other people do indulge in because they're not going to heaven. We don't work for our salvation, but we're called as believers unto good works. We're called as believers to do good works, not to be saved, but because we are saved. Okay? I'm trying to just dial in on this idea of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. So he says, the time is coming and is now here. The time is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. When those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. The truth, what does that even mean? Well, obviously it has to mean the truth of God's word. So if you are tapped into some deviant, non-biblical, false belief system, and you say, I'm worshiping God, you're not worshiping the true God. You may be worshiping a God, but you're not worshiping the God. It has to be rooted and grounded in the truth of God's Word. And when you make ridiculous assertions, like some of the faith teachers have, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagin, those guys, that I'm God and you're God. That's blasphemy. You're not worshiping this God, the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Benny Hinn says, oh, there's really nine members of the Trinity. You know? The Father's a trinity, the Son's a trinity, the Spirit's a trinity. That's not biblical. That's false teaching. You're not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he goes on to say, well, yeah, before the fall, Adam could swim underwater like a fish. He had gills and blah, blah, blah. Really? That sounds like evolution to me. I think Benny Hinn evolved, but not into a man of God. You see what I'm saying, folks? Worship, true worship, has to be based and rooted and grounded in the truth. If you say, like Victor Paul Werewill, who founded The Way International, there's no trinity. I believe the Jehovah's Witnesses say the same thing. A number of these cult groups, one of the key giveaways, the dead giveaways, my briefcase is still laying here, one of the dead giveaways is they deny the Trinity. Well, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible, but is the doctrine of the Trinity, is the teaching of the Trinity. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes. The Bible clearly states there is one God, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But then the Bible also clearly tells us Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In Genesis, in the beginning, let us create God in our image, really? Who's there? Who's the we? Who's the us? Who's the our? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Any group that denies the Trinity is a cult. It's a false teaching. They are not worshiping the true God. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. To worship God in spirit and in truth, your worship's got to be rooted and grounded in the truth of God's Word.
the truth of who he is. The Samaritans were religious, but they were untaught, untrained, and made up their own rules for worshiping God, just like many people do today. Folks, God is the one who tells us how he is to be worshipped. We realize that, right? Not the other way around. An intimate relationship with God requires openness, honesty, and transparency as well. That's the second part of this idea of worshiping God in truth. First of all, rooted and grounded in the truth of his word. Secondarily, openness, honesty, and transparency. Genesis 3.6 When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Doesn't say it was an apple, but she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Adam's just standing there. Wow. She ate it. She's okay. Guess I'll have some. (laughs) Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? God knew where he was. Why are you hiding, Adam? Why are you running from me? What's the problem? You can't have a relationship with God if there's not openness, transparency, honesty. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, and there are a lot of people who do that, are you a sinner? No, not really. The movie, Wednesday night, how many came for the, the uh, Ray Comfort abortion movie? And you see people and how... He talks to them and the different guys that are working with them and how they respond. He eventually, Ray Comfort is an expert at exposing people to their own sin. But in the beginning, oh no, I'm okay, I'm not so bad, yada yada, right? John, 1 John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, you can't have relationship with God. You can't be a true worshiper of the true God if you don't have openness, honesty, and transparency. God is never going to be shocked, surprised by your sin. He already knows it. But he wants you to know that he knows and you know. Acts 5.1 But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and thought and bought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So, many of the the followers of Christ in the early church were going out and selling their possessions, bringing it to the apostles because they were in dire need. Many of those people had been cut off from their families. Jews who became Christians were considered as dead 
by their family members. They were rejected. All they had was each other. In many cases, they'd lost property and resources and so forth. So the believers were coming together, having all things in common. So Ananias and Sapphira decided they wanted to contribute, but they deceived the apostles and led them to believe that they had given the entire amount to the church. It would have been fine if they would have just said, well, we're going to keep back 10%, 20%, 50%. Here, we're giving you this part, we're keeping this part. They, they wanted to look super spiritual, so they led them to believe that they had given all of the proceeds. And that's why Peter said that you have, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, kept back part of the price of the land for yourself, and so forth. You have not lied to men, but to God. And you remember what happened to him, right? Right? God struck them dead. First Ananias. Then they bring the wife in. She's got a chance to save herself at least. It's too late for Ananias. He's done. So they ask her. She backs him up to the T and she drops dead. Whew. I'm glad that God isn't doing those kind of things today or most of us probably wouldn't be here. And I'm including myself in that group. But that gives you an example of how seriously God takes openness, honesty, transparency between ourselves and Him, also between ourselves and one another. Folks, you've heard me say this probably many times if you've been here very long. Our relationship with, our, with God and our relationship with other people intersects. What, what is that form? A cross. The horizontal and the vertical, they can't be separated. If you treat your brother or sister in Christ or even a non-believer like garbage, then your relationship with God probably isn't very good. And if your relationship with God is good, you will be manifesting. I'm getting very convicted right now because my wife knows me better than anybody else. I try to put my best foot forward here just like we all do. But at home, I'm no better than anybody else, believe me. And I confess that and I ask God's forgiveness if in Jesus' name for not always being the man of God and the husband and father and grandfather that I should be. There it is. I can't go on with God unless I stay broken and humble before him. It's that simple. And the same thing is true for you. But our relationship with God and human beings are interconnected. And so to worship God in spirit and in truth, we have to be open, honest, and transparent with Him and with each other. That doesn't mean you should just go off, haul off and spill your guts to anybody and everybody. Okay? That's not wise either. But in James chapter 5, it does say, Confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. That's why it's important to to develop relationship with other believers. That's why I encourage you this morning with some of these smaller groups. You need to make friends. David had a special friend, Jonathan. Remember? There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Even Jesus had a special friend, the Apostle John. Somebody that you know you can trust, that you can share your deepest, darkest secrets with. They're not going to judge you. They're not going to reject you. And they're not going to go out and gossip about you. You need that. But it takes effort. 
to get to know people, to interact with people, to fellowship, to make those special relationships and friendships. And Lord willing, you should be able to go to your pastor and talk about it as well. Myself, Pastor Ed, Pastor Dave, Pastor Ted. And oftentimes we're really saddened by the fact that sometimes we're the last people to know when there is a problem, somebody has a problem or an issue, some kind of tragedy. It just happened not long ago. I remember my wife and I, I forget what it was exactly now, but we both said, I can't believe we didn't know about that. Other people in the church knew we didn't know. Don't be afraid that you're going to bother us. Oh, I don't want to bother. It's like people have that attitude toward God. I don't want to bother God. Really? Jesus died on the cross for your sins. I think he's been just about as bothered as he can get. He wants to hear from you. He, God can handle it, folks. When nobody else can, God can handle it, all right? Don't be afraid to go to God, and don't be afraid to go to your leaders in the church. Verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Whew, I might have to cut this short today. We may not be able to get through. God is a spirit. He is invisible to us, cannot be seen with human eyes. He's in another realm, another dimension. That's why Jesus came to earth. Colossians 1.15. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God is spirit, but His Son came in the flesh that we might be able to relate to Him. 1 Timothy 1.17. Now, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The King eternal, immortal, and invisible. That's why Jesus said those who worship Him must worship in spirit. Jesus reiterates that which He's already stated, this time with the word must. We cannot and must not try to bring God down to our level. We must allow Him to bring us up to His. Jesus came down to bring us up. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Jesus came down to lift us up. We should never try to bring God down to our level. He wants to raise us up to His level. We've talked about it so much. The spiritual versus the earthly, the temporary. 1 Corinthians 2.12-14 through 14. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Those who worship him must worship in spirit. Some people wrongly equate outward exuberance with spiritual worship. Making a display of oneself for the purpose of appearing spiritually superior is a work of the flesh. I mean, I love exuberance in worship. I think it's great as long as our hearts are in the right place and we're doing it for the right reason. 
The Bible absolutely encourages lifting of hands, clapping of hands, bowing down before God, even dancing when appropriate. But if we're drawing attention to ourselves and distracting others, that's just not right. And so again, we, Paul talks about comparing, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Some people just automatically assume if you're really demonstrative, that means you're more spiritual. Not necessarily. It might mean you're really in the flesh. I'm not trying to put a damper on anyone here. I want you to feel freedom in worship to express yourself. But just let's just remember, God's trying to lift us up to his level, seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. 425, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. The Samaritans believed in the coming Messiah, but guess what? So do many other belief systems. The Muslims believe that the last Imam or the Mahdi is coming, that he is the Savior of the world, the ruler of the world, that Jesus will be his right-hand man, and it will be Jesus' job to convert everyone to Islam, and if they don't, he's to cut off their heads. That's their twisted form of eschatology, their twisted form of a Bible prophecy. They believe in a coming Messiah, if you will, the Mahdi, but it's not Jesus. Zoroastrianism believes in the Saushant. Buddhism, Maitreya. In fact, Warren Smith talks about Maitreya in his book, Evangelible. Hinduism, Kalki. Taoism, Lihong. But there can be only one true Messiah. She says, yeah, I know when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all things. Matthew 24, 4, Jesus answered and said to them, the disciples, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. That's happening in our day and age like never before, Father, uh, folks. More and more people claiming to be the Messiah, or they know him personally. <laughs> And this lady, the Samaritan, says to Jesus, When he comes, he will tell us all things. Lady! He just did. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Woman, you're talking to him. I suppose that we could say, we talked about the seven I am's a couple of weeks ago, remember? In the Gospel of John. This could be an eighth I am, because he says, I who speak to you am he. There's an I am in there. Now we've yet to have the villagers come, the man that she's cohabitating with. The disciples will return with the food. The villagers will come out to meet Jesus. So this is not quite over yet. Let's stand. As we lower the lights and we prepare to go to the Lord in prayer, if you have a prayer request, please raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you this morning. How many of you believe God is here with us? Whenever two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there in the midst of them. He's right here. We didn't come today to talk about him. We came to meet with him. And he is here. Do you believe that? That means when we call upon him, he will hear us. Let's pray together. Father God, 
You've seen the hands of those that have been raised requesting prayer. Lord, we talked about that this morning, Father, how sometimes people take on the attitude that you're too busy, uh, we don't want to bother you, but you're our loving Heavenly Father. What bothers you is when we don't come to you, when we don't pray. So now, Lord, we're coming to you, and we're thankful that we've been promised in your word that if we would ask anything of you, Father, in Jesus' name, that you would hear that prayer. So we come now in the name of your one and only Son, the name above all names, the only name given under heaven by which man must be saved, the name Jesus Christ. We come to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Pray for physical healing for those who are struggling today with illness, sickness, disease, injury. Lord, we're thankful that the degree of the physical issue is of no consequence with you. It doesn't matter how serious the disease is, if it's terminal. Lord, we know that you can heal anyone and everyone from any affliction. But we do submit to your will this morning, Lord. We pray for your will to be done, but we pray for your grace and mercy to be poured out upon those who are struggling with any form of illness, sickness, disease, injury. We lift them up to you. We pray for comfort, for encouragement, for strength, for wisdom and guidance, Lord, because you do speak to us about how we can take care of our physical bodies. You do give us that wisdom and that insight if we will seek you for it. We pray for blessings upon medications and treatment that may be being administered to different ones here today, that you would enhance the effectiveness, that you would multiply it, magnify it, and bring healing, Lord, to your children and to those whom we're representing here today. Maybe someone that we are thinking of, someone at home, someone not here, someone far away. We thank you that your Holy Spirit knows no boundaries. You can reach someone all the way around the world. So we ask that you just bring that healing now in the name of Jesus. Pray, Lord, for healing of mind as well. For We talked about that, Lord, how nothing can replace Jesus. No medication, no psychology. Lord, we know that you use these things in certain situations. But first and foremost, we want to come to you and trust you for the healing, not only of our physical bodies, but of our minds. Lord, we ask you to... to Cleanse and heal people from anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, anger, bitterness, resentment, jealousy, unforgiveness. Lord, we talked about that last week. Help us, Lord, to repent of any sin that we're harboring in our hearts that might affect our mental, emotional, and physical condition. Help us to be broken and humble before you, to confess our sins, and to receive that healing that comes from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for provision for those who are struggling financially. And we pray that you'd help us as a body to minister to one another, just like we talked about in the early church, that we would be able to take care of one another, encourage one another, support one another. Lord, we pray finally, Father, for relationships that have been damaged or broken, for healing of marriages that are having trouble or perhaps have already been torn asunder, that they could be healed and restored, for friendships, relationships. We talked about the importance of those relationships today, Lord, and the enemy wants to come in and divide us. Help us to, to as much as we can, bring healing, restoration, uh, reconciliation. Lord, for those people that we've been at odds with, help us when we need to, to be the first to apologize, to repent. But Lord, we ask that you'd heal those 
broken friendships and relationships and marriages, Father, in particular. Thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you for answers that are now on the way. We trust you. We believe you. And we know, God, that you hear our prayers, and we thank you for that. Pray now that you receive our final offering of praise here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 